so glad you're here. We're sorry that you're sitting in closets and downstairs and all of that. Um, but it really is good to, to come together and to worship together and to pray together. And thank you, band, for leading us this morning. I was doing some math, and I, I think I've listened to, in, in my lifetime, on a conservative, conservative estimate, some, somewhere between five and 6,000 sermons which is crazy, and yes, I'm old, but 5,000 sermons, and some of those sermons have made an impact on my life, and some of those sermons, a lot of those sermons I slept through, and I remember one specific sermon in high school, I was sleeping through it, as usual, and, and uh, presumably to wake me up, the, the preacher pounded the pulpit, and the pulpit was in the shape of a cross, and, and when he pounded the pulpit, the whole side of the cross fell off, Right? <laughs> which made an impact on me in a lot of ways. And, uh, and so what I was thinking about in these 5,000 plus sermons and the impact it made or did not make, a lot of times it was about my heart posture and my expectation. So Aaron talked about this in the call to worship today. Are we coming in expecting to hear from the Lord? Are we coming in expecting to engage with his spirit, with his people on Saturday night, what are you thinking about for today, right? Are we mostly staying in our heads, keeping a, a lock on the door of our emotions and our feelings? Or are we the opposite, where it's all about our feelings and emotions and what we get out of it and never going beyond the surface of what the Word is actually saying and wanting to dig into that? Are we using our imaginations as we kind of put ourselves in ourselves in in the setting of the scripture, or as we think about how does this actually apply to my life, and my work, and my study, and my relationships today? Are we engaging with our, our minds and with our hearts and with our imaginations? So we're studying the Book of Acts, and there are twenty-eight sermons. 28 sermons and speeches in the book of Acts. It makes up a third of the book. And this morning, we're going to look at the first sermon. So this is a sermon within a sermon, right? Second chapter of Acts is one of the most important chapters for us as church because it is the story of Pentecost. This is the story of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the story of the birth of the church. And as we see these perplexed people of Jerusalem engaging with their imaginations and with their hearts and with their minds. My prayer, our prayer as a staff this week has been that we would do the same. We're going to walk through this passage in three parts today. So there's going to be times for, that we're going to pause and we're going to reflect with some questions. We're going to reflect with some prayer and some worship. We're going to take communion kind of embedded into the sermon. So this is, a, this is a, an interactive time. I wish we had time to actually be interactive and to ask questions and to, to, you know, kind of teach each other today. In this setting, we can't really do that, but I pray that you will engage with your heart and with your mind and with your imagination today. In case you're just joining us in this study of Acts, um, 
It's written by a guy named Luke, who was a doctor and uh, traveling partner of Paul on a lot of his missionary journeys. Luke wrote a gospel, one of the four gospels, the story of Jesus, his ministry and his birth and death and resurrection. And then the book of Acts is like part two. It's a sequel. So it's the continuing, continuing work of Jesus in and through his church in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the setting for Acts chapter 2, where we are today, is the city of Jerusalem. So even now, start to engage your imagination in this, okay? city of Jerusalem, packed with people. It's Pentecost, which is one of the feasts of the people of Israel, where people from all over the known world would come to Jerusalem and gather at the temple and have just a week long of feast and worship and prayer and uh, celebration together. Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. So this is 50 days after the death and resurrection of Jesus, okay, after his ascension. And that's important because what we find is that the apostles and the other Jesus followers are gathered. Pentecost was built on two of God's covenant promises, One was out of Ezekiel, where God says, I will put my spirit in them. I will put my spirit in them. And the other one is out of Jeremiah that says, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. And spoiler alert, these promises take on a whole new reality in Acts chapter 2. So Pentecost is happening, okay? And we find the followers of Jesus, 120 of them, gathered in a room. So think about like half the size of this room. This room holds 300. So uh, less than half will be waiting. In Acts chapter 1, we read this. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. This is Jesus talking. Which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So here's 120 people gathered in this room praying, and they're waiting. And they're praying that the Spirit would come, and they're praying that Jesus' kingdom would come, and they're praying for the power and the restoration of all things. And they're praying with confident humility. I love squeezing those words together because I think it's a template for how we should pray. Confident humility, confidence that God is who he says he is. And so we can pray some big, audacious prayers based upon his faithfulness, based upon the fact that he is trustworthy. And that brings us humility, (laughs) that it's not up to us. It's not up to our spirituality. It's not up to us getting it all right. It's not because we're good enough for God to hear us. It's all about God. So we come to him with confident humility and we pray these prayers and we wait for the spirit to move. And that's where we find the apostles and the 108 other folks in Acts chapter 2. Okay, are we ready? You, You ready to go for this? Engaging your imagination? Yeah, thank you. All right, good, good. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to wretch 
rest on each one of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That's crazy. Engage your imagination. What sounded like rushing wind filled the room, filled the house. Jesus had said this in John 3. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In the visual, what looked like tongues of fire resting on each of their heads. Do you remember in Genesis 1, the creation story? The Holy Spirit hovers over the waters, about to give life to everything. And here he's hovering over the 120 Jesus followers, about to give birth and life to the church. Isn't that cool? Yes, that's cool. Come on, help me out. As you read this, you're experiencing something strange, something miraculous. You're experiencing something that goes beyond our imaginations because this is the birth of the church. We think of the Holy Spirit often as bringing encouragement, right? Bringing comfort. He's a counselor. He's a comforter. And all of that is absolutely right. But here we see the outpouring of the Spirit. Here we see his his display of mission and of power. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So here we have not just the apostles, not just the 12, but 120 all being filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in a play on words, the tongues of fire become tongues of language. Verse 5 Now, they were staying in Jerusalem. They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Like I said, they all came to the feast. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts of Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, let's say this together. What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they've had too much wine. Keep your imaginations in gear because the scene shifts from the room to the street. And the sound of wind that gathered thousands of people, now as the worship service pours out of the room and onto Waldron and State, each person was miraculously hearing God being praised in their own language and dialect. And they were amazed. And they said, aren't all of these guys Galileans? Which is another way of saying, aren't they rednecks? Aren't they hillbillies? They can't even speak their own language. How are they speaking in our language, our sophisticated dialects from all over the known world? This is crazy. 
The Spirit was breaking through every barrier. And the response was bewilderment. They were amazed. They were perplexed. Some were even threatened. And they tried to rationalize it. Well, it's obvious that they're drunk. And it's, that's what's going on. Others were astounded. So rushing wind, tongues of fire, each hearing in their own language, in dialect, Engage your imaginations. Put yourself in the room. Put yourself on the street. Ask that same question. What does this mean? Don't let this just just be another lecture in your whole docket of weekly lectures. Let's put ourselves in that room and on the street. I want to press pause and just let us reflect in real time on these questions. What are you waiting on and praying for in your own walk toward and with Christ? What does it mean to pray in confident humility in accordance with what Jesus has promised about his spirit and power in your life and in our church? And how has Jesus spoken your language? How has he met you where you are? What signs and wonders have made you curious about his love in pursuit of you? I just want to invite you to to grab a hold of one of those questions. Even pray. It's like, which, which of those questions, Lord, do you want to really speak to me about in the next four or five minutes? Just grab a hold of one of those and just sit with it. Practice some curiosity with it. Listen. What does the Lord want to share with you, what's the Holy Spirit doing in and through your mind and your heart and your imagination as you wait and as you pray and as this same Jesus is pursuing you? engage our imaginations, but we also engage our minds. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Let me, let me explain this freaky thing that just happened. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It's not breakfast club. This is it's Pentecost. Just a few weeks before, Peter had had no words. I mean, the words that he had had were were curse words of denial. And now, filled with the Holy Spirit, he stands up and he, he boldly launches into a sermon. And he engages their minds by connecting the dots about how the Old Testament prophets all point to Jesus. How David all points out everything points to Jesus. He said, let me explain this to you. Verse 16. Now, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And this is the first sermon, right? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel had promised that the Holy Spirit would come all throughout the Old Testament. God had promised that the Holy Spirit will be sent. Who is he? He's a member of the Trinity, right? He is a foremost God's personal presence. He's not some sort of Jedi force to be mastered. He's a person to be trusted and loved. You see his power at work in creation all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, all throughout the book of Acts. And then it continues through you and through me and through the church all over the world as the Holy Spirit still hovers over the chaos of our culture, the chaos of our world, and fills us in order to bear witness to what Jesus is continuing to do to bring life and freedom to everyone. Jesus had promised this in John 14. I will ask the Father. He's going to give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. And this is the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Here's a snapshot of the Holy Spirit, my version of spoken word, okay? Spirit, one of the three, altogether God, altogether Jesus, altogether holy. He comforts when we're torn up. He convicts when we screw up. He carries when we're ready to give up on life as we know it. He continually shows it the mercy of the Father. He gives us the truth because he gives himself, saves us from the delusion of self-help seminars and reading the stars of our subtle superstition. He puts words in our mouths when one can't be bought, when we struggle to formulate a single thought wrought with a confusion of what and how to express what's going on. He turns off our speech so we can listen, sacred, sweet hesitation to hear his voice or others mention what we desperately need to grasp. He gives discernment to stay or go, to read the highs and lows, the yeses and nos, to read between the lines in keeping step with Jesus. He leads us not into temptation. He relieves our fears and trepidation. He brings us out of isolation into the gathering of his church. He's generous with his love. Like hand in glove, he fills us with assurance reminiscent of the promises of the Father. He brings peace when the world gets crazy, conviction when our minds get lazy, trust when the future is hazy with the unknown. Spirit, one of the three, altogether God, altogether Jesus, altogether holy, come and fill us now. Peter stands up and with boldness says, today's the day. <laughs> this promise 
that God would pour out his spirit in his salvation on all people. Today's the day. So he quotes Joel, but it's really not about Joel. It's about Jesus. And then he goes on to connect the dots with everything that Jesus has done. And the sermon continues. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. You've seen it. This is only 50 days past the crucifixion. The same people that had been gathered in Jerusalem during Passover were now gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, many of the same ones. And so he said, you've seen this. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the blind see. You've seen the lame walk. You've seen the the dead raised by this man, Jesus. You can bear testimony to this. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible. Listen to this. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, and you will not let your Holy One see decay, and you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died. He was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. David wasn't talking about himself not seeing death and decay. He was talking about Jesus. He was a prophet and knew what God had promised him on oath, that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. And God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're witnesses of it. We've seen it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David will, did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Therefore, let all Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And that's the first sermon. The Holy Spirit comes. He engages their imaginations and their curiosity through fire and wind. And they said, what does this mean? And Peter says, oh, let me explain. And Peter implores them to engage their mind. And then he blows their minds. And he blows their minds with this. This kingdom of God that you've been praying for and longing for and searching for and anticipating for hundreds and hundreds of years, it has come through the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And now Jesus is exalted and he sits at the right hand of God. And from that place, he pours out his spirit on everyone. And that's what you have just witnessed. That's what that sound was about. That's what that fire was about. And now that's what the sermon's about. The kingdom and the spirit have come. And then the mic drop. 
in verse 36. This is God's epic plan for humanity. And this Messiah that you've been waiting for, you killed him. You killed him. And he's not vilifying the Jews. If you read the rest of Acts, it's like God is pursuing Jews everywhere, Paul and Timothy and Barnabas and Silas, go. They always go to the synagogue first. God's heart is for the Jews. He's not vilifying them. He's calling them to repentance. He said, you tried to wipe Jesus off the face of the earth, and guess what? He came rushing back to save you. The one you killed died to give you life. That's the sermon. The one you killed died to give you life. This is one of several times in Scripture where you see this juxtaposition. Use your minds here. Just juxtaposition of God's sovereignty and epic will and human nature and actions for which they have responsibility. Let me take you back to verse 23 really quickly. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, in your free will, in your darkened state, you, with the help of wicked men, you put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. He references King David, and there's this incredible part of David's story. When he took his eyes off of God, and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. you remember this? And then to cover it up, he had Bathsheba's husband killed. And he goes up for weeks like it's no big deal. And Nathan the prophet comes, and he tells him this story about this little lamb and how this person, this poor person was taken, taken advantage of. And David is just outraged. And he says, we've got to have justice here. We've got to have justice here. We've got to have justice here. And Nathan turns the table and says, hey, look, you are that man. The one you want justice for? The one you want to get? The one you want to kill? That, hmm. The one deserving of death? That's you. That's what Peter's doing in the sermon. Messiah that you've been waiting for? You, you killed him. And his heart was to lead them to repentance. And here we are a couple thousand years later, sitting in this room with no windows, right? The center of this campus. I don't know about you, but as, as I read this, you know, even like reading through the Gospels, it's like, how, how could you guys be so blind? You've got Jesus right there in front of you. How could you kill the Messiah? And then I'm reminded of this hymn, how deep the Father's love for us. And there's a line that says, it was my sin that held him there. His dying breath has brought me life. He has ransomed me through his death. So I, I, it's my sin. It's your sin that took Jesus to the cross. Not just these Jews gathered for Pentecost. 
And I say that not to vilify, not to shame, but with that same invitation that we are also called to repentance. We're going to press pause again, and we're going to take communion together. And so, as we, as we look back at the cross, as we keep engaging our imaginations in our own minds and our own hearts, can we be aware that this grace that has been offered to us, this grace, Paul says, in which we now stand, it's free. It's a free gift that we just received. We can't earn it. We can't achieve it. It's a free gift of grace, free gift of love, free gift of mercy that frees us from sin, frees us from death in order to bring us into new life. But that grace is a costly grace. And as Jesus stretched out his arms and breathed his last and took on the weight of your sin and my sin and the, hum- uh, the sin of all humanity, that's a costly grace. So I find myself listening to this sermon in a very theological way. It was my sin that held him there. So I come to communion with just deep gratitude, not in shame because we've been freed from shame. But let's not skip over the weightiness and the costliness of that grace before we get to resurrection, right? captures their imagination, then he engages their minds, and now he engages their hearts. And in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And then said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. And with many words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. The Holy Spirit brings this conviction of sin and the same people who just a few weeks ago were shouting, crucify him, now are shouting, what do we do? They were cut to the heart and Peter said, repent and be baptized. And again, we have to use our imaginations to get in the context. For a Jew to hear repent and be baptized, would, well, that would unhinge you because that was something that Gentile converts did, not Jews. They were chosen by birth, right? This isn't for, for them. This is just for the Gentiles. And Peter says, actually, it's for you too. Insiders as well as outsiders need a new heart. Gentiles as well as Jews need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And here they are submitting to the very one 
in the name of the very one they had rejected and killed. Baptize means to dip. It means to submerge. It means to overwhelm. Romans 6 says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead to, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That our baptism is parallel to what Jesus did through his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection. Illustrating that. 1 Corinthians 12, we've been baptized into Christ's body by one spirit, uniting with Christ so that we become part of his body by receiving his spirit. It's an outward expression of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple. Death to self-reliance in a new life of faith following Christ. Peter's sermon in response to the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit is simply and profoundly Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Christ, and this changes everything. This changes everything. And so here we sit, and the same thing is true for us. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Christ, and this changes everything, that salvation is for all, that repentance and baptism are for all. The forgiveness of sin is for all. The gift of the Holy Spirit and hope of resurrection and eternal life with Christ and the gift of community and the restoration of all things, all of it is for everyone and anyone who receives Jesus as Lord and Savior. So this is what happened then. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Isn't that crazy? 3,000 said, yeah, I want to be a Jesus follower. They were cut to the heart. They repented. They were baptized and added to the church. As we engage our imaginations and our minds and our hearts, we have to ask these same questions. What does this mean and what do we do? Peter warned them. He pleaded with them. There was a sense of urgency about it. Let yourselves be saved. Don't wait. So the invitation and the command is the same for us to repent, which means to turn from sin and turn toward Jesus to receive his forgiveness and his salvation. And the command for them is the same as the command for us to be baptized, to be immersed in water as an outward expression of inward change. And the command the promise is the same as well, that we receive the Holy Spirit, the very presence and power of Jesus in your life. So if you haven't yet repented, and if you haven't yet been baptized, and if you have, haven't yet received the Holy Spirit, then there's a sense of urgency. <laughs> Don't wait. Don't wait. If you have, if you have repented, if you have been baptized, and if you have technically received the Holy Spirit, let me ask you this. Are you walking in step with him? Are you submitted to the Holy Spirit's leadership in every part of your life? Are you experiencing his presence and power each and every day? Let me ask you this. If the Holy Spirit took a three-month vacation, would you notice? I'm saying that not to shame us, but to invite us, that there is this 
power and presence of God's very spirit in you if you are in Jesus. That changes everything. On the one hand, Acts 2 is this unique experience. It was the birth of the church. It was empowering them to bear witness to Christ. And yet, what is true for us is that every Christian must have an infilling of the Holy Spirit in order to be a Christian. There is no Christianity apart from being filled with the Spirit. So this is uh, in an inauguration of a new era of life in the Spirit. The, the apostles were the primary witnesses. They were the eyewitnesses, but we are secondary witnesses. Let me, let me explain that really quickly. If you are a Christian, you bear witness to an incredible, transforming, healing, death to rescue, death to life, rescue, forgiveness of sin, promise and hope of new reality. You are a witness to what Jesus has and wants to and promises to do in your life. And as you've been given the power and the presence of the Spirit, He empowers you to bear witness. So that was a one-time event, but that has lasting reverberations that shake this room. We may not see a tongue of fire resting on heads, but inevitably you have or you will, like Jeremiah, experience this fire pent up in your bones that you can't contain, this passion that won't go away. You may not experience the sound of rushing wind getting your attention, but inevitably you have or you will experience the Holy Spirit breaking through every barrier in order to get to you. And you may not experience the miracle of me speaking in Mandarin or Spanish or even decent English on a Sunday morning, <laughs> but inevitably you will experience God speaking your language directly to your heart letting you know that he sees you, that he knows you, that he loves you, that he is inviting you into relationship and calling you to trust him with your life. So the invitation is the same. It's to repent, it's to be baptized, it's to receive the Spirit, it's to walk in the Spirit, to be changed in a way that changes everything.